So yeah, I have the, the privilege of closing out our series, Killing Our Gods, and I have the privilege of speaking on um, genuine repentance today. Um, yeah, it's Palm Sunday, and I get the good sermon, and I have the longest amount of scripture to preach from. <laughs> but, you know, while you guys were enjoying worship, I had the pleasure of enjoying Z Kids, and we were playing with bubbles, and the Holy Spirit filled the room. No, just playing. <laughs> We were playing with bubbles and we had some fun. So I want us to get us started here. Um, as you see on your sermon sheet, I'm going to be preaching from uh, Psalm 51. It's a long psalm, but you can read Psalm 51. If you guys don't mind turning the mic down and the monitor for me. Um, you can read Psalm 51, right? And you can read it and then not know where David's coming from. It's like, why, why is David writing this thing? So I just want to give you some background, you know, of where this is coming from. This is coming from 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is when David and Bathsheba, um, they sinned, right? So just in case anybody's in here and you don't know the story of David and Bathsheba, I'm going to recap it really quickly, but I want to encourage you when you go home, do me a favor, open up 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. Read it through for yourselves. So, 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is taking a walk on the palace roof, and he spots a woman bathing, right? She was uh, cleansing herself after her, her menstrual cycle. So she's out there, she's bathing. He sees her, he desires her. He tells his uh, subjects, go get me her. They sleep together. She comes back sometime later. She lets him know I'm pregnant. David's like, oh, man, I messed up. Instead of going to God, he's like, let me try to fix it. He's a typical man. Let me try to fix it. So he goes and gets her husband, who's out at war, brings him back, tries to set, feed him and get him drunk, and then send him home, thinking he's going to go and sleep with his wife, and then everything's going to look good. But this man is noble, doesn't go and do that. And, and David realizes this guy's not going to do what I expect him to do. So then David doubles down and says, well... I'm going to send them back to war, and I'm going to tell my general, hey, put them at the front line. When the fighting gets really uh, fierce, pull everybody back but him. Kills him. End of the story, David takes Bathsheba as one of his wives. Looks good. Looks like he got away with it. And then we get to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and God's like, uh-uh. Sorry, David. I'm going to let the prophet Nathan know exactly what's going on in your life. Nathan approaches David with a story, a parable, and... Then he asked David, who's wrong in this parable? And David's like, this dude. And Nathan's like, that's you. David's like, yep, it's God, right? Most kings at the time probably would have killed the prophet and been like, oh, I'm going to kill him. He knows what happened. I'm going to kill him. David realizes that this is God's mercy. This is God's love. And he writes Psalm 51. So we're going to go into Psalm 51. Let's just pray real quick. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to preach your word today, God. I pray that you would be with us in this room, Lord God, that you would be all over our hearts, all over our minds, God, that what we hear today, Lord God, will go deep into our hearts, Lord God, and it would uh, teach us, Lord God, and instruct us in the ways that you want us to walk, Lord God. I pray that as we leave this room, Lord God, we would be changed from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, it says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, 
Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. David approaches God asking for mercy, but he's speaking to God's character. He's speaking to God's hased, what David uh, St. Jean preached about a few weeks ago. His hased is his covenant love, and it's based on his character, his character of love, of kindness, of grace, and of mercy. Now, if you've been in church long enough, you've probably heard there's a New Testament God and an Old Testament God. There's the God of mercy in the New Testament and the God of wrath in the Old Testament. But what David clearly shows us here is that the Old Testament God is full of love, full of mercy, full of grace. So what's been taught to us is not true. There's not two different sides of God. It's one God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? And I was thinking about this, and then I'm like, man, but what happens if you have parent issues? It's hard to approach your father, right? And as you saw, my son Micah, right? I love him to death. He can tell me anything, even if he's wrong and done wrong, I still love him. But a lot of us, maybe we didn't grow up in a home where we have a father or a parent figure who loves us, right? So when you do wrong, you don't want to go and tell them. Maybe you're going to get, uh, maybe you were going to get a spanking or something worse. Um, maybe you were going to get degraded and talked down to, right? Um, I remember friends when I was in school, if they went home with like a B, anything lower than an A, if they went home with a B and a C and the test was really hard and everybody else in the class failed it, but they did really well, their parents did not care. You didn't measure up to this level and they would let you know that you didn't measure up. But that's not our God. That's not who he is. And David understood who God was. So in his sin, he throws himself at the mercy of God. And he's like, God, please come, forgive me, cleanse me, wash me. He used the term blot out. Now, I was looking up this term because I was like, well, what does it mean to blot out? It's actually an accounting term. It means to completely remove the debt, to completely clear the debt, to wipe it out as if it never existed. See, when we have sin in our life, we have a debt that we can't pay. We have a debt we can never atone for. No matter all the amount of good that we could do, we can never atone for it. But we throw ourselves in the mercy of Jesus, and within an instant, he puts his blood on it, and he blots it out. It's there no more. It's not covered up. It's gone completely. And then David says in verse 2, wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, Justin stole some of my thunder because I walked out as he was closing out worship. But how many people here have a car? Raise your hand. Oh, yes. All right. How many people have kids and have a car? Raise your hand. Good. So sometimes I'm frugal. My wife would say cheap. I go to the car wash, right? Yo, it's like $35 to wash the car completely. So I'll just pay the $15 to wash the outside. But you wash the outside, you get the hot wax, you get the armor all tires. But when you got kids, it's not the outside of the car that's bad. It's the inside of the car. So what happens is you wash the outside and then you got to open the door and go on the inside and there's some funk inside the car. There's 
chips, there's Cheerios, there's Capri Sun, there's French fries, there's half-eaten hamburgers that don't have mold and they're probably like six weeks old. They're hard as a rock, but there's no mold. That should just make you think what you eating. But there's stuff all over the car, and then that's the back seat. And then in the front seat, there's gum wrappers, there's candy wrappers. While we're driving, there's empty bottles of water everywhere. And it's like, okay, the outside look good, but you don't drive in the outside. You drive in the inside, right? So you don't pay for the inside to be clean, so you're riding around in a mess. David's like, no, it's not good enough for the outside to be clean, God. I need you to clean the inside, too. Wash the inward parts. Wash it all completely. I don't want to be dirty on the inside, but look good on the outside. And then he goes on to verses 3 and 6, and he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. David didn't stop just asking for mercy and asking to be clean. He goes on and he lets God know, I sinned. I broke your heart. I'm the one who, broke, who, who sinned against you. Oftentimes, it's easy for us to pass the blame on someone else. David could have really easily said to God, yo, Bathsheba was on the roof and she was all soapy and naked. She looked good. Like, gosh, she tempted me. But if you read chapter 11, when you go home, read the first two sentences in chapter 11. It says, when kings would be out to war, David stood home. So God could have easily flipped the script on David and been like, but you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. So because you chose to be there, don't get upset at what happened after that. You made the first decision to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. We can often pass blame on other people for our sins. We can be like, you know, most men can be like Adam in Genesis. The woman you gave me. This, this God, the, the guy cut me off in traffic, God. I cursed him out because he cut me off in traffic. I... I, I, I watch this thing because, you know, I, I'm, I'm dealing with all this stress, right? This is why I'm doing this, God. David's like, no, no, no. I've sinned. I've done what is wrong. See, when we repent, we come and we let God know what we've done wrong. We don't come just going, oh, well, I messed up and here it's my bad. And there's a, there's a teaching right now that's going on in the churches. Actually, it's been going on for a while now. This teaching of cheap grace. Grace, it's teaching forgiveness without repentance, right? So it's a my bad, God. I'm sorry. But what are you sorry for? There, there, there's no admittance to what you've done. You're just, I'm sorry, my bad. Um, speaking of my son, Micah, when Micah messes up, you know, and he does something wrong, he says, I'm sorry, and I say something back to him. Um, I say, sorry, didn't break the lamp. You did. And when, since he was little, and he didn't understand what that meant, but now he understands what that means, right? You just saying you're sorry doesn't fix the lamp. It doesn't, it doesn't make up for what you've done. Why are you sorry, Micah? 
Are you sorry because you were wrong? Are you sorry because you did something you should have not done? Are you sorry? What's the reason why you're sorry? I want to hear it from you. And the reason why I want to hear it from him is because I actually want him to have a heart that's sorry. I don't want him just to, that's to be his, his reaction to everything, right? That can be our reaction. That's that message of cheap grace where it's like, there's grace for that. There's grace for that. I've sinned. There's grace for that. And it's like, well, then you stop saying, I'm sorry. You stop going to God and you stop admitting your sin. You're just like, oh, my bad. Your prayers become very quick and, and futile. Oh, I'm sorry, God. I'm going to keep going on with my day. And what ends up happening is that we, um, and if I'm not mistaken, it says it, is it Galatians where it says it does it? You don't blush at your own sin, right? You don't, it, it doesn't grieve you. You just, I'm sorry. You know, it just, it, it's, it's flippant. It's kind of like, that's my reaction to Jess when I, when I feel I'm in trouble. I have to admit that. <laughs> when, when she gives me a look, and sometimes it could not even be me. It could be something else, but I'm sorry. She's like, what are you sorry about? Why are you saying you're sorry? I was like, I don't know. I feel like you're mad at me. She'd be like, I'm not mad at you. I'm like, I'm sorry. And then she's like, stop saying you're sorry. And I say, I'm sorry. That I said, I'm sorry. That's, that, that's where we get, right? We get to that place. But David lets God know that if God still didn't forgive him, God would be justified and blameless in his judgment, right? God chooses to forgive us. He doesn't have to forgive us. The message of cheap grace teaches us that God has to forgive us. He doesn't have to do anything. He's God all by himself. He does not have to do anything. He chooses to forgive us because of his loving kindness and his mercy. And then David throws this in because I think we throw it in. Um, and he doesn't throw it in to throw it in and just be like, oh, well, this is one of the reasons why. But we use the saying, God knows my heart, or, yo, this is the way I am. <laughs> like, that's a cop-out. This is the way I am. You know how I am, right? Um, I say that to Jess, too. Man, I'm sorry, honey. I put you through a lot. Um, <laughs> she's with uh, uh, Shiloh in the room. Um, we use it a lot, especially when we talk to God. Well, God, you know my heart, or God, you, you know how I am. And then David follows that up. He says, but that's not good enough because God desires truth from the inward being. And God doesn't desire it from us to muster it up ourselves, but he places his Holy Spirit in us, the spirit of truth, to keep us in line with the truth. So we know when we're sinning. We know when we're doing wrong. Let's keep it moving. Uh, verses 7 through 9. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken hide your face from sin and blot out my iniquities. He starts off and he says, purge. This word that he used here literally means descend me. He's asking God to descend him. And then he says, with hyssop. The reason why hyssop was so important is because it was used twice in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 12 and in Numbers 19. The first time it was used, it was to apply the blood of the, lamb, of the Passover lamb over the doorposts. And the second time it was used is because it was used to the purifying water that they would apply upon the priest. David was approaching God and saying, you're my high priest. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to wash me. Again, it's this 
it's constantly us confessing, but then bringing back to who we're confessing to, who God is in our life. He's not looking down on us. He's not angry at us. It's you, I need you. I can't do this on my own. And then David says something that I thought was crazy. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. And I was like, what does this mean? Why would you rejoice when your bones are broken? All he was saying here is that the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it felt like his bones were broken, but they were rejoicing because the conviction worked. It caused him to go to God. It caused him to run to God. When God convicts you and you go to him, you should rejoice in the fact that you're going to him. You're not going to this or going to that. You're going to the one who can make you well, who can make you whole, who can cleanse you. Let's go on to verses 10 to 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Create, same word that, he used, that, that was used in Genesis chapter 1. It means to make something from nothing. God is the only one who can take our heart and create a new heart in us. Nothing we could ever do could create a new heart in man. This was a precursor to Ezekiel 36, 26, where God says, I'm going to take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He's the only one that can exchange and change our heart. I know that sometimes we think we can, and if we listen to the, the, the new age gurus of the day, we can change ourselves. Unfortunately, we can't. We can't. We will go back to our old ways. We will go back the, to the stripes that we had before, right? A leopard knows the stripes. You can't change your spots or whatever it is that the saying goes. The, you, you go back to your sinful nature over and over and over again. You can't change it. Only God can change it. David realized it. When you go to him, ask him for a new heart. And then he says that, he, he, he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. I think oftentimes before God can remove us from his presence or take his Holy Spirit away from us, we, we move ourselves from his presence. Because when you have sin in your life, his presence is not fun. His presence is not a good place because you feel the weight of your sin. You feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and it does not feel good. It reminded me of something growing up. I am a, a 90s kid. I grew up in the 90s. Any other 90s kids in the house? Ooh. Anybody remember house parties? Okay. <laughs> so house parties if you've never heard of a house party or been to a house party usually you're either in the basement or if your friends had a garage or the living room and like all the furniture was pushed up to like the walls it was mad dark you had the cheesy strobe lights and they had a DJ with the biggest system in the world in like a 400 foot square foot apartment you know so the, the walls be rocking now, I grew up in a Christian home, and I say that because I didn't grow up with, like, you know, um, what people consider worldly music going on in the house. I grew up with, like, Christian music. So it was either, like, you know, Darlene Sheck or, you know, something like that going on. So 
I was worldly because I wasn't serving the Lord, so I would go to these house parties. I didn't have parents who taught me how to dance. I have no rhythm. If you ever see me at a party, I have no rhythm. Um, I don't know how to dance salsa or merengue or anything. Um, so I would go to house parties, and I'd be the dude standing on the wall. You know all those people, right? Got the one leg up on the wall. You're just standing there watching everybody, you know, and it's usually guys. I rarely see girls standing up on the wall. It's usually guys, and then they joking about talking about, you know, people dancing and stuff like that. But, you know, it looks really fun. If you want to admit it, it looks really fun, but you're just standing on the wall. In church, that's how it is. When God's presence is in the room, you end up standing on the wall, and you're like, man, I would like to get in on that, but I feel dirty. I feel shameful. I don't know how to jump in because I've got this thing on my heart, and I can't get into it. And why? Because we haven't been taught how to repent. We haven't been taught how to go before God. Um, Maybe we grew up in a church where the only time you repent is at an altar call. So you wait for an altar call, but then you're so ashamed at what you did, you don't want to go up to the altar call because you don't want anybody to see you go up to an altar call. So you stay in your, your mess, right? And I say that because I've been to a couple of events, and I'm jealous of Justin in this. I've been to weddings with him and some parties. My man will be the first dude on the dance floor he sets the tone on the dance floor for everybody. I have too much of a self-conscious. I look like an idiot dancing. I won't get up there and dance. My wife will have to drag me to get up and dance with her something. But Justin be up in there, you know, he'd be doing the electric slide. He'd be like, yo, it don't matter. Justin's like, yo, I'm getting in and I'm doing this. He's the first person in and the, first, and the last person to leave. I want a heart that's like that. That when I mess up with God, it doesn't matter. I'm going in, God. I'm, I'm going to get back to where I was before. I'm going to go into that place where you are. I don't want to be out of your presence, like David was saying. I don't want your Holy Spirit removed from me. And I don't want to remove myself from that place. I don't want to disqualify myself. David wanted back the joy of salvation. If you read 2 Samuel 11 and 12, You'll get this picture. There is a length of time between when David commits his sins and when Nathan comes to confront him. And in that length of time, to me, it looks like David had some miserable moments. It looks like David knew what it was to be out of God's presence. And the reason why I say that is because David said, restore to me the joy. That means he lost his joy. He lost the joy of salvation. You can lose the joy of your salvation. You can be in the house. You can be sitting in a service and you could not be joyful. You could not be um, participating in the joy that's happening in the room. Now, I was next door, but I could hear Jess worshiping and I was joyful in the other room. Because I could hear the worship that was going on. I could feel the presence of God. And I was like, man, you're amazing, God. Even though I wasn't in the atmosphere in the same room as you, I felt it and I was enjoying it. But there have been times when sin is on my life that I've sat there or I've stood in the back and I've disqualified and removed myself from it. And I'm just standing back, waiting for the worship to be over, waiting for Justin's word to be over, 
praying to God that his word is not convicting to me because I don't want to deal with my sin at that moment in time because I'm too ashamed. I'm too whatever it is. David knew what it was, and he was like, no, no, no. I want my joy back. I want, I want your joy back, God, the joy that you give. Verses 13 to 17. Then I will treat, teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Again, David goes back to this thing of, yeah, my sin, I'm going to tell you what it is, my blood guiltness. This was the murder of Uriah. He was letting it know. He's like, God, there's blood on my hands and I need you to cleanse me. I need you to um, forgive me of this. But like I was saying before, the message of cheap grace, it teaches us cheap repentance. It teaches us really bad ways to repent to God, really bad ways to go to God. In the amount of time, like I was saying, that passed between the sin and the, the, the confrontation of Nathan, there was times of sacrifice that God was required, right? The, the people of God, they sacrificed to God. This is something that the, that the priest would do daily before the Lord. So David had to bring sacrifices to the house of God. And David brought a ton of sacrifices probably to the house of God. David had the best of the best. He was king. He didn't have, the, he didn't have the, the lowly lamb and sheep walking in. He had the best of the best animals. And he would bring those to God because that was a requirement of him. But he says, God, those things you do not delight in. Why? Because this was the thing that was wrong. This matters more to God than the sacrifices that was being brought. It was, where was David's heart in all of this? Where's your heart in all of this? Where's your heart to God? When you go and you bring him your sacrifice, whether it's your worship, whether it's your giving, whether it's your time or your service, all of these things, if this is not right, all those things, they don't please him. They don't bring him any joy because he's after our hearts, Scripture says. God cares about our hearts more than he cares about any sacrifice, anything that we could bring him, any gift that we have. Just can get up here and sing the most amazing song and be the best singer in the world. But if a heart is not right before God, all that is noise to him. It does not please him. He doesn't get up and stand up and go, that's my daughter. No, he's like, what are you bringing me? It's tainted. There's a, a passage in 2 Corinthians, and I think it's um, relevant to what we're talking about. And it's 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 10. Now, if you know anything about the Corinthian church, they were worldly. They were messed up and jacked up. Again, go to your word, read 1 Corinthians, and then read 2 Corinthians. Paul, man, Paul had a heavy hand on them because they just didn't learn. Um, one example was there was a dude sleeping with his um, stepmother. And they just, they, everybody in the church knew what was going on. Nobody said anything. It was just like, okay, nope, we're going to let it go on. We're not going to confront him. And Paul lets them know that that's not right. But this part, he says, as it, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, 
but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let's look at the first part, worldly grief, or the, the last part, sorry. Worldly grief breeds bitterness and resentment. Worldly grief, it doesn't, it, it doesn't breed anything that is alive, that causes you or your heart to be alive. What Paul was saying here is that what I did, what I did in, in, in bringing to you what you did wrong, it led to a repentance where Christ can come, heal your heart, restore you, redeem you, and move you forward. Why? Because your heart was hurt. You understood. You grieved God. When we sin, we grieve God. When we repent, we're making right with God because Jesus comes, he puts his blood on it, and he says, I paid for that. I paid for that. I paid for that sin. And it doesn't matter the sin that was committed. David murdered, he committed adultery, he murdered someone, he covered it up, he caused his own general to sin by telling his general what to do to commit the murder. Like, Dude went farther than I think anybody in this room has ever gone. I, I don't know everybody's situation. And God said, yeah, I can redeem that. I can forgive that. God went as far as calling him a man after my own heart. Heart that's broken before God and truly remorseful of their sin, that's a heart that God redeems, God restores, and God forgives. That's where he, that, that's where he thrives to bring forgiveness is when our heart is truly bare before him. Verse 18, do good to Zion your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. <clears throat> he wasn't talking about us, Zion, just letting you know, just in case you think. It'd be kind of cool if we were in the Bible. Um, thanks, Justin. I think we need a new uh, music stand. Um, <laughs> when you have unconfessed sin in your life, when you're dealing and you're not repenting, and you don't have a steady practice of repentance, unfortunately, it starts to affect the things around you and the people around you. You don't believe me? When you have unconfessed sin in your life, and you don't go before God, and you're not repenting, your heart gets cold, and you start reacting in ways that you wouldn't react before. You don't react out of Christ-likeness. You react out of a worldly or sin-likeness. Maybe you snap at your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend or your kids. Maybe you have a, a shorter fuse when you're driving or when you're on the subway or something like that. Maybe at work, you start slacking off and putting in less work, everything starts changing around you. And people notice this stuff. Your family will be like, man, what's wrong with you? Why are you so angry? Why are you so bitter? Like, what's going on? It's exactly what, he was, what, what we were saying in 2 Corinthians. You become bitter. You become resentful when you have this thing in your heart and you're just, you're grieved by it, but you're not grieved to repent. You're just like, man, I messed up because you put it on yourself. Because you think you have to do good. 
But when repentance is there, David says, you can do good to Zion. You can restore the walls of Jerusalem. See, God can repair anything. God can fix anything. He can fix any situation. If, if we're truly repentful, he can come and fix it. Maybe, maybe you cheated on your spouse. And you have to go and you have to repent to God. But you also have to repent to your spouse. And most of the time, that probably ends in a failed marriage. But with God, there might be reconciliation. There might be restoration there. Why? Because God is in the mix. Because he comes and he says, okay, I know you've messed up. But he puts it in your spouse's heart. Forgive. As I've forgiven you, you forgive. As I've loved you, you love. I know that's hard to swallow. I know it's like, whoa, it's ultimate betrayal. But I just, I felt like that was a good example because I've seen it done. I've seen it in people's lives. I've seen where the world, it would have just fallen apart. And there would have been a nasty split up. There would have been kids separated from the other parent. There would have been just a dire situation. But because God was in the mix, there was restoration. But it was a truly humble God, I'm sorry. I've, I've totally messed up. I'm, and I've seen it where it's mended and there's, re, there's redemption in that. And it didn't happen overnight, right? We can't front like, oh, okay, it happens. It took time for that person to, to, to forgive and to trust again. But God was in the mix and God was healing. And then David ends off and he says, now that I've repented, you're going to accept the bulls and the goats. You're going to accept the sacrifices that I bring, the gifts that I bring to your house. What I do in your name, you're going to accept. It's going to be pleasing to you because the heart that's bringing it is actually remorseful and, and repenting of what was wrong. Today's not an easy message, especially on a Palm Sunday, um, you know. But I think after a few weeks of us going through and talking about the <laughs> us talking about the uh, the idols in our life, the things that we've bowed down to at times, the things that we've put before God at times. Um, something I, I, I heard and I can't forget is you can't break the other eight commandments without breaking the first two. Right. You can't break the other eight commandments without breaking the first two. And we've spent a while going through the idols in our life. And something, uh, if you get a chance, read this, this book by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods. He talks about near idols and far idols, right? A lot of times we deal with our near idol without ever dealing with our far idol. So what ends up happening is that like I said, you clean the outside of the car, but the thing that's afar off, the inside of the car, you're never dealing with because nobody ever sees that thing. They only see the outside of the car. So all you care about is what people see when you're driving by. When you're in church, all you care about is people see that you're lifting your hands or that you're serving or that you're doing this, but there's no repentance in your heart. So all these things are just outside. They're superficial. It's to please the gods in our life, not the God of creation. think what 
God is calling us today is to begin a healthy practice of repentance. Repentance doesn't happen just at an altar call. It could happen at an altar call. It just doesn't happen at an altar call. 99% of the time, repentance happens at home in your alone time with the Lord where he puts his finger on something in your heart that's wrong. Because a lot of times we don't know our own sin. There's a lot of things that we know we do wrong and then there's a lot of things that we just don't know. It's, I don't want to say subconscious, but it's, it's there. It's something that we do. And then God's like, oh, you remember this thing? And then you're like, oh. And God's like, bring it to me. It's not your time to cover up in shame, to throw fig leaves on yourself. It's your time to walk up to him and to let the God who did the first sacrifice to cover Adam and Eve come and cover you with his blood. Hey, Haroon, can you come up? Today, I'm giving you an invitation to begin to practice repentance. And I'm not going to send you home to practice it. I'm going to give you the opportunity to practice it right here, right now, today. And I'm not trying to pull on your heartstrings, but yesterday, a 24-year-old man named Dwayne Haskins thought he could cross a road in Florida and ended up dying. And I bet you that at 24, he thought he had a long life to live. He thought he had a lot of years in the NFL ahead of him. He did not know that that would be his last moment. And I pray to God that he knew Jesus. But I don't know everybody's here. I don't know your next moments. So I'm going to give you the opportunity today to get before him, to get before Christ. Whether it's in your seat, there's going to be leaders on the side and in the back. If you need to repent of something, I want to encourage you, find somebody to pray with. Whether it's your spouse sitting next to you or a friend or a girlfriend or a boyfriend, let them know what you've done. The Bible tells us to confess our sins one to another. It doesn't do that so that we are ashamed. It does that so that we're accountable and our sin is no longer a secret. When you have to say it to someone, you can't hide it anymore. You can clean the outside of the car and if you've never given anybody a lift, it's okay, right? Nobody's going to tell you, yo, your car stinks. But if you open up the door and let somebody in, somebody's either going to slip you $15 to go clean the inside of your car or they're going to let you know, hey, John, hey, Justin, your your car got kind of a funk to it. It's a little messy. Maybe you should go clean it up. So if you could just stand with me real quick. There's nothing shameful of going to somebody and saying, I've messed up. We've all been there. I've sinned way too many times to even count. But what I do love is that I have brothers in this house that I can go to and I can say, yo, I've messed up. And I need you to pray with me. And you know what? They've joined me in prayer. So I'm going to pray for us. And then Jess is going to lead us in this last song. And if you need to make your way to somebody, 
whether it takes us 15, 25, 35 minutes to end the service, or it takes us five minutes, it does not matter. But please don't leave here with unrepentant sin in your heart. God, I thank you for today. I thank you that you love us and you send your Holy Spirit to convict us. Not to shame us, but because you love us and you want us right with you, God. So I pray for all our hearts today, right now, God. If there's something that you're putting your finger on, God, that we've been struggling or dealing with for a long time, we thought we, we, thought we hit it, we thought we buried it, Lord God. But God, every time it just comes up and it's there, like David said, it's ever before him. I pray that we would deal with it today. We'd bring it to the only one who can blot it out, the only one who can take it out forever, where it could never come back to haunt us, God. We take it to the one who died on the cross and gave his blood so that we could be made white as snow. Jesus, would you move on our hearts today? Move us to repentance. In your precious name, amen.